Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 272. I'm Steve Kwan. And I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. How's it going, Matt? What's up? Pretty good. Glad to be back. How you doing, Steve? Not bad. I was just telling you beforehand that uh, we were managing a kid's birthday party today, and your kids and my kids were all there, and they were the only ones that were behaved. All of the other kids were just like wrecking the place. And of course... It was an art birthday party, and I just got to say, our kids had the best art. That is pretty impressive. I saw some of the art that my kids did, and yes, I was happy with it. And (laughs) if our kids were the kids that were well-behaved at this thing, then that says a lot. Those other kids must have been really shitty kids, so... I know, man. I got to say, one of the things about having children is when you get them all together, their ability to just kind of riff off of each other and just burn tons and tons of energy is incredible. I don't understand how they don't get tired. Like if someone could figure out how to harness all of that energy, we wouldn't have any energy problems in the world. The amount of energy these kids produce and burn is just unbelievable. All right, Matt. So beyond all of that, what are we talking about today? You had a great topic and I think it's a great idea. Let's unpack it. Let's get going. We were going to talk about the biggest mistakes in jujitsu, you know, just common mistakes, biggest mistakes for practitioners. This is maybe an episode that I think beginners would get a lot out of most likely. It's stuff that we've definitely talked about previously on the show. And I think it's good to reiterate, you know, some of these big common mistakes for people who are in jujitsu. And like I said, I think more at the beginner or intermediate level, I think those are the type of students that are going to benefit from this episode. Man, I could go on for days and days about that. So probably we're going to have to break this down by category. I think that just having a chat about actual jujitsu on the mat grappling mistakes is probably the best focus today. But if people like this, let me know, because we could have similar conversations about common competition mistakes, teaching mistakes, gym owner mistakes, business mistakes. Just I find this kind of stuff to be really helpful personally when I hear other people talk about it. So looking forward to this one, Matt. Now, you've got a lot more Matt experience than me, no pun intended. So why don't you start riffing on some of these? I know you had some suggestions documented. Maybe get me going. What's one of the uh, the top common mistakes that you see with most grapplers? Cool. And this is sort of a topic that I think we could do like a whole series on it, like you said. This is these are just the couple of things that came to my mind as I was sort of brainstorming for this episode. But, you know, really, it's limitless and it's all up to interpretations. If people have common mistakes or things that they want to suggest, I think leaving it in the comments section would really help the show and we kind of get the conversations going. But the first one that came to my my mind was just being unable to regulate tension within your body. So I think that's one of the biggest differences between really good jujitsu fighters and entry-level jujitsu fighters is their ability to regulate tension. And anyone who can see a white belt on their first day in class 
you know, generally they get exhausted quickly, albeit they don't really know what the hell they're doing, but you'll see them exerting energy in situations when they shouldn't really be doing that. And that could be another reason why beginners are actually kind of difficult to deal with. First of all, they don't give you predictable responses. And second of all, they tend to be so strong all the time because their whole number one thing is just to not let the other person do what they want. But as you get more advanced, you realize that there's a lot more flow. To quote my drum teacher, he uses a word he invented called flotility, which is essentially you know, a transferable to jujitsu as it would be in music, which is where you enter that flow state and you just, you sort of go with your partner's movement. It's more about a conversation that you're having physically with your partner, as opposed to arguing with them and, and clashing with everything they do. And you'll find that the really great jujitsu fighters kind of allow people to move, but they can sort of set traps and create reactions that still allow them to do the moves that they want with minimal effort. And I think that this is kind of a trademark for the best jujitsu athletes and an interesting thing about regulated tension is when you're super tense, it actually will stifle movement. And anyone who does jujitsu knows that movement and, and good movement, quality movements are such an important part of the game. Everyone's got different styles. Some people have movement based styles where they, you know, they create lots of movement and some people have styles that just focus on immobilizing people. And I've played with both styles. Now Now that I'm older, I like to immobilize people. I like to crush people and stop their movement. But if you're constantly tense, it's very difficult to make smooth movements. And so you kind of have to regulate this when you're training. You have to play that line between creating movement when it is necessary and taking away movement and having tension in your muscles. Yeah, absolutely. I know that in the past, we've done a, at least one whole episode on staying loose, but there's more to it than that. If you're training with a beginner, it's often good advice to tell them you need to stay loose because you know with a beginner, one of the most common problems they're going to have is they're going to be too tense. And for the reasons you brought up, it's a bad idea to tense up. Unfortunately, that's also probably going to be your body's natural response when you, <laughs> you go into something new and scary. And like you said, when you're more experienced, you can feel the lack of experience when you're sparring with a new person because you can feel them being tense all the time. Not a good idea because it telegraphs the person's intent. It telegraphs their emotional state too. You can tell if someone is afraid because they're tense. And also it's easier to move a person who is tense. So good beginner advice is often telling people to loosen up a bit. But on the other hand, you don't want to be loose all the time because then you're just a wet noodle. There comes a point where you have to tense up and explode. That's how you generate power and force. And a big part of smart jujitsu is knowing when to be loose and when to be tense. And that I think is something that often takes years of practice. And much like you brought up here, it's something that I wish I had thought about a lot earlier in my journey personally. Yeah, and so the next logical question for anyone is, okay, well then when is it an appropriate time to be tense? And when is it an appropriate time to be relaxed? And I think really what it comes down to is offensive and defensive cycle dichotomy, I think is a good way to look at it. So we've spoken about this a lot on the episode on the show pretty extensively. I've spoken about it on my show. If you ever listen to Gordon Ryan or Dan or her talk about jujitsu, they're always talking about the offensive defensive cycle dichotomy. And really what it is, is, you know, I look at it as like a health bar in a video game when you have two guys fighting each other and the health bar is kind of slowly depleting, right? And if you can make someone's health bar slowly, slowly deplete, they're going to be more vulnerable to attack. And so when you're trying to attack someone, usually 
I would say most of the action hovers around the neutral cycle. You know, maybe you're in my guard, I'm trying to off balance you, but you're shutting it down. And these little micro transitions, these little small movements are going back and forth. We're kind of canceling each other out, you know, second by second. A lot of the time it's happening multiple times per second. And there's just these tiny series of little battles that are constantly getting presented and diffused by both athletes. And then you'll see somebody get kind of a breakthrough. And that's where you'll see that dichotomy shift to one side and one athlete starts to take the offensive cycle. What does this usually look like from the top position? It usually looks like they're getting chest to chest or they're closing distance. They're blowing past layers of the bottom player's guard and they're making the bottom player frame on them. And now the bottom player is forced to work harder than the top player. So this would be a good time for the bottom player to have some tension in their muscles because they're going to have to frame right from an opposite perspective. If the bottom player is gripping and off balancing, now the top player has to tense up. They have to kind of, well, you could look at it this way too. Sometimes people on top kind of like to float and actually stay relaxed. It can be beneficial to relax your muscles on top as you're getting off balanced as you keep your base. But the bottom player, again, is going to have to exert energy to create this offensive cycle from the bottom as well. So generally when you enter the offensive cycle and when you enter the defensive cycle, that's when you're going to see a little bit more tension in the muscles. And when they're in this neutral sort of area, that's where we're kind of relaxed. We're kind of feeling each other out. Neither athlete is stressed too much because there is not much of a threat at the moment. But in a moment, there's a breakthrough. And now one athlete clearly takes the advantage. And so if I'm on top pinning you, I can't just pin you without tension in my body. I have to wedge you and immobilize you to hold you down. And so it can be very difficult for a beginner who has a very small repertoire of moves or a very little understanding of jujitsu to go in and be asked to grapple with someone who knows what they're doing. And it's difficult for that beginner to not to be able to regulate the tension effectively. Really, they're just fighting for their life most of the time and they have no idea what they're doing. I like to think about like uh, for anyone who's ever done any striking, if you're sparring for the first time, it's a very uncomfortable thing and you're going to get exhausted very, very quickly. Even if you're not doing anything, you're exhausted because you're so tense and you're so stressed and everything feels so labored because you just don't have the experience. And meanwhile, the other person is probably extremely relaxed because they are more experienced than you. And so just through experience and time put in, that's where athletes can really find where to relax their muscles. But I would say generally in the neutral cycle, that's where there's going to be relaxation of the muscles. And then when you're either on the offense or defense, that's when you're going to have to apply tension in your muscles. Yeah. Another thing that I learned uh, too late into the game is that when you're constantly tense, it makes it very predictable to your opponent what you're going to do. It also makes it harder for you to just generate sudden force because your opponent is already on guard against you. If they can feel your tension, they're going to feel your intent as well. Whereas if you're loose most of the time, and then at the right moment, you apply some force and some tension, you can catch people in their weaknesses. And you feel this with beginners again, because if they're constantly trying to grab and squeeze as hard as possible, you know what to expect from them. So your defenses are up. But if they're loose and they're floating around, then suddenly when they do apply that tension, they can apply it in a way where you're not resisting and they can find that opening. It's very hard, unless you're just way bigger and stronger than the other person, it's very hard to actually just break through someone's defenses straight up when they expect what you're doing. So a big part of being loose and flowy, like you said, is you're waiting for that moment. You're trying to find that moment where suddenly it would make sense to apply tension. 
Examples of that include during the stand-up game, if you look at judoka, a lot of the time they're very, very loose until they find the opening they want, and then they either get the kazushi or they go for the throw, and that's where the tension gets applied. Similarly, when you're going for submissions, common beginner mistake is trying to crank on the submission before they actually have it locked, whereas a more experienced grappler will have a very loose control, well, not really loose, but they'll have a very relaxed control and only will apply that tension when they're actually confident that they can finish. So I like to think of tension as kind of like an exclamation mark, right? You put it at the end of the sentence when you're ready to make the point, but beforehand, if you're tense all the time, you're too predictable, you burn too much energy, and also people can tell you're afraid, and that gives them confidence that they know you're afraid. Anyone who's ever trained with like a high-level black belt sort of feels that quicksand feeling. And that's when they're trying to apply techniques to someone who's much higher level, much more knowledgeable in these different positions. And it kind of feels like you're sinking into quicksand. It kind of feels like the black belt or whatever higher level athlete is just sort of floating on top and just sort of absorbing the Kazushi, just kind of toying with the person on the bottom. And you can feel this. It's a really incredible thing when you roll with someone who's that good, who can just shut you down. And then at the end of the roll, you're just, you feel like you got run over by a truck and they're just not even breathing heavy. You're like, holy fuck, how the, is it because this person is, um, you know, much more conditioned than myself? Not at all. You could be a marathon runner and then go in your first day of jujitsu and roll with a, a blue or a purple belt and you feel incredibly exhausted, even though your cardiovascular ability is much higher than that person. It's just honestly, a lot of it is knowledge and understanding where you can relax, where you can take rests. I think this is a very important thing to understand for competition too, when conserving energy is a really big part of the game and should be looked at as a real benefit to an athlete who's in a, you know, a 10 minute match or 15 minute match or no time limit match, having that energy reserve and being able to manage it is a really big asset to any competitor. And again, you cannot go in there balls to the wall 100% for that long. It's just very, very difficult to keep that pace. I'm not going to say it can't be done. There are a couple of guys that I've seen that are able to do it. But again, just to sort of, sort of circle back with everything, I would say basically as a rule of thumb, anytime you're trying to immobilize something, or anytime you're trying to manage distance, these are probably going to be times where there's going to be a ton of tension in your body. Yeah. Or I would also say too, in the situation where timing requires you to hit the person with a lot of force, you don't always see this on the ground, but in stand-up, this is pretty common, right? The application of tension is a very timing specific thing in the stand-up game. Absolutely. I like how you use the analogy of with judo and wrestling and it's true. I mean, I would say in wrestling, there is a lot of tension a lot of the time, but in judo, for sure, there's times when athletes will kind of set traps for each other. They'll be very relaxed with the grips. And then all of a sudden I shouldn't say relaxed with the grips. Usually their grips are strong as fuck. And then their arms are really, really relaxed. And then all of a sudden, boom, they turn their hips and they're going for throws and things like that. So again, it's like short bursts of tension to apply particular techniques. I think the next thing I wanted to talk about was the fight for the inside position, which I believe we've talked about before. There's actually oh, a yeah. jiu-jitsu podcast called the Inside Position Podcast. Something like that. I've heard of it. So inside position is a concept that is super important in jiu-jitsu, especially when you're looking to manage distance or if you're looking to pin and just winning the small battles for inside position, I think is one of the it's one of the main concepts that any beginner or entry level jujitsu fighter can use to be effective from top position. When you're trying to break through frames, you have to pummel inside those frames from the bottom position to manage distance. You always need to recompose your frames 
inside of your partner's wedges, I guess you could say. So, you know, if someone's trying to pin you, what they really need is to get inside of your frames and wedge you from different angles, immobilizing you. And from the bottom perspective, just having those structures in place where you're constantly fighting for the inside position is how you maintain the space you need to get into offensive guards. I would say this as a caveat in the gi, I've noticed there are situations where inside position is not as relevant because you are using different forms of control. You're controlling someone using their clothes rather than direct control over their body. So if I'm on top on someone and I'm trying to pass the guard in a split squat position and they're framing on me, you know, in nogi, if I don't get inside position, I'm never going to get chest to chest on them. But in the gi, if I just grab their collar and I pull myself in, it adds a completely different effect that doesn't exist in nogi. Even if they have two hands framing on the inside, I can now pull myself in and just use gravity and the gi to collapse those frames a lot of the time, or at least make them exhausted. This is kind of interesting. Me being someone who has focused mostly on nogi for the last couple of years, I've kind of, I'm not going to say forgotten, but I've just not really considered how the gi can be used in this way. And so I'd go against these really good gi athletes. I just get smashed. I'm thinking to myself, like, why? I'm dominating the inside space a lot of the time, but my frames are getting crushed. Well, it's because... If you can manipulate the jacket properly, then the inside position kind of isn't as important as it would be in no gi. So again, anytime that you see a Gordon Ryan demolish his opponent or even just his guard retention, he's always fighting for the inside position. He's probably the best passer in no gi right now, I would say. It's it's hard to argue that. And if you watch what he's doing, he's always winning the battle for inside. And he's playing dilemmas that force his partner to react. And he uses those reactions to pummel to the inside position. This is why he's always passing through the half guard. If you're going to be a half guard passer, which I have sort of structured my game from the top position for the last couple of years as is half guard passing, you have to win the, the battle for inside position to get to that chest to chest position. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you completely here. People on the podcast will have heard me riff on this many times. I stopped calling it inside position a while ago. I generally refer to it as taking the inside channel or controlling the inside channel. And the reason why is because a lot of people get very confused sometimes when you say things like inside position, because when you're being verbal, sometimes they hear inside position as opposed to inside position. So however you choose to describe it, I think people know what we're talking about here. It's getting on the inside. Usually that means getting between their legs, getting between their arms, making yourself small and compact and getting in close and tight. And I agree with everything that you've said here. One thing that I have also observed, like you said, is that inside position and inside channel are not as much of a universal rule as I maybe initially thought. There was a time when I used to tell people, always go for the inside channel, always take it if it's there. But there are many counterexamples of people who work the outside channel to great success. And you astutely brought up, this is usually in the gi that this happens. I mean, people who come to mind... Margot Ciccarelli and John Thomas do a lot of stuff like that. I mean, if someone is playing Deli Hiva guard or they're doing matrix back takes and stuff like that, they're normally going around the outside and that stuff can work. I would say though, that number one, as you mentioned, outside stuff normally works better in the gi because you can compensate by grabbing onto grips. Um, that said, there, there are people who can do it. No gi Rob Bernacki, your coach does a lot of outside stuff in no gi as well, but I would agree with you that it's more common in the gi. The other thing I would also point out is that playing the outside game 
tends to be a bit of an attribute thing. Some people are just going to be better at it than others. A lot of going around to the outside means you, if you're the outside player, you probably have to do a lot more movement than if you were to attack through the inside. Because by definition, you're not taking the closest and the quickest path, right? You're going around the person instead of through the person. So that means that you've got to be fast enough and flexible and nimble enough that you can actually get around the person fast enough to secure the position. And of course, a lot of the way that you would do that is by doing things like inversions. And again, now you're getting into body type stuff. So I think that it is probably close to inevitable that for most people, as they get older and they slow down and they get more injury averse, they're probably going to gravitate towards an inside channel pressure-based game But there are a lot of super athletes who attack from the outside. Like Lachlan comes to mind again as someone else who does this quite often. I was going to say, I was going to use Lachlan as a, as an example, I believe in a couple of his videos, he's spoken about how he prefers outside guards rather than inside guards. So things like K guard and Della Hiva and things like that compared to an Ashigurami type attack. Whereas you have guys like Gordon Ryan, John Danaher, and their whole system is based upon two feet to the inside. I play both. I think the more diverse your attacks are, generally the better or more diverse your game could be. And so I like to enter legs and different positions from outside guards and inside guards. You're definitely right. When you use the gi, I think you will see more outside guards generally, at least in the maintenance phase of guard passing at the higher levels of jiu-jitsu like you're going to see Dela Hiva arguably the most common open guard that you will see in the gi whereas in no gi a lot of people play two feet to the inside and it's just a preference thing I mean I'm not saying one's better than the other I think every well-rounded jiu-jitsu athlete needs to have a good Dela Hiva they need to have reverse Dela Hiva they need to have Ashigurami they need to have X guard these are all things that we should all strive to get But like a common thing, let's break it down to the most fundamental level. I just refereed a tournament today in Vancouver and man, like some of the mistakes you see are fucking crazy. Like someone will get mounted and they'll just lock their hands around their opponent's body. And it's like, why are you doing that? There's no way you can escape when you're locking your arms around your opponent's body. Instead, anytime you're kind of in a pinning situation, where you're in bottom mount or bottom half guard or bottom side control, really what you should be doing is bringing everything to the inside. You should be looking to get your upper body inside with your, you know, your forearms and your hands and your elbows, and then strive to start getting your knees back to the inside. This is kind of like the template for pin escapes. It's funny, you know, I can understand kids making that mistake, even though I really work hard to try and get my uh, kids not to do that. It's all about getting hands to the inside in these defensive positions. But man, like some of these adults, even blue belt and up are just like locking onto their partner's body when stuck in bottom pins. And now their arms become exposed. And it's like, holy fuck, did my jujitsu just get worse from watching you guys do this shit? Like, oh my God. Anyways, maybe I'm not being the most understanding person to, to some of these athletes, but this is a very common mistake that can be easily fixed. Just pointing your elbows down to your belt, basically, and keeping your arms inside. Start there and then start moving your body so you can get your knees back inside. Now, that's actually a great transition because the next thing you wanted to talk about here was um, failing to understand the distance battle from top or bottom. And again, I think that distance is something that not enough coaches talk about. Everyone is so focused on getting to the technique right away that people don't talk about important stuff like when it's the right time to use a technique. I mean, I believe it was Ryan Hall who had an example about having different weapons for different distance ranges 
And understanding that not every tool is the right tool for the job, depending on the distance between your opponent and yourself, it's just a real game changer to finally grok that because you will eventually realize once you understand that, that so much of the failures you've experienced have come from the fact that you were trying to do a short range move at long range or a long range move at short range or something like that. And that doesn't even get into general philosophies about the best distance to attack from when you're inside someone's guard. But that's enough for me. I'll turn that over to you and you can explain. You're absolutely right. I think from top and bottom, understanding the distance is so important. Let's just use the bottom, for example. Well, first of all, I'll just say that I think every athlete to be well-rounded needs to have weapons at different ranges. As the analogy goes, I don't know if it was Ryan Hall or Keenan, but they were talking about the layers of guard and they were using analogies of different weaponry. They were saying, you know, there's a sniper rifle. That's like your long range frames. Then there's going to be your rifle, which is a mid range frame, and then a shotgun, which is a short range frame. And then when you're caught chest to chest there, it basically is no distance management. This is where you're like, you know, using a knife. So it's just different weapons for different ranges. And really, I think that's an effective analogy, but it is important to have different tools at your disposal for different situations because there are going to be times when you're on the bottom and your partner gets chest to chest on you. There's going to be times where you're going to want to, for specific opponents, you're going to want to get underneath your opponent and stay tight to them like like a tight waist half guard series. And then there's going to be times when you want to maintain distance and use like an open range, an open guard Della Hiva, for example. I had Jonathan Thomas at my school about a year and a half ago, maybe, and he did a Della Hiva seminar. And one of the main concepts he talked about was actually building distance when you're playing De La Hiva. And I thought, hmm, that's kind of strange. I've always played De La Hiva trying to get underneath my opponent and elevate them. And I'm not thinking about making space. But what he's saying is extending your legs and creating space while using De La Hiva because you will actually have more leverage when it comes to off balance them. And I was thinking, how does that work? And he said, well, think of this. He used an analogy of somebody trying to chop down a tree. And he said, let's say you tied a rope to a top of a tree. And now, you know, you're trying to pull the tree down, but you're standing right next to it. You're not going to have as much leverage to pull the tree down as you would if you were standing 20 feet back or whatever, or even more. The further back that you stand, the more leverage you have over the tree by pulling at the top. And I thought, huh, that's an interesting concept. And he said, yeah, most people will structure their open guard. They'll say, build your guard from your grips, get your grips. That's where we're going to build our guard from. And then he said, I actually teach it where I like to structure my guard based on distance. If I can create distance, it's very, very difficult for my partner to ever get close to me. And so it's something that I've been trying to implement with my Dele Hiva in the Gi. It's worked quite well. So from a top position, I think a big mistake that people will do, and again, I'll pick on the poor beginners, where they stand up and let's say uh, somebody's standing in the closed guard. And so they've done a bunch of work to get off their knees in the closed guard. They're trying to back away, right? They're trying to really what they should be doing is backing away completely until the point where the guards open and they've backed out past the line of the feet so that they can start misdirecting the feet and creating angles. But what you'll see a lot of people do at the white and blue belt level, or especially kids, is they'll do all this hard work to stand up in the closed guard, and the guard pops open, and this is their chance to escape, and they try to just blitz right through the middle, and they just end up getting caught in the closed guard again, because they never backed all the way out. A common mistake for beginners is they think that passing the guard means always come forward. And the truth is, is that if 
the person on the bottom wants you to come forward, like let's say they're trying to get underneath you with an ashigurami or a tight waist, you should not be coming forward. You should be giving the bottom player the opposite energy of what they want. And that's really what jujitsu is. In jujitsu, you know, as we were talking about regulated tension earlier, for a strong athlete to be able to do what they want, they need to get the other person to react. They need a type of energy from that person that they can use against them and off balance them in the direction that they want so that the technique is that much easier and that and that much more efficient. So when I'm on top, if somebody's trying to pull me on top of them and get underneath me, I just try and shut that down and back away from them. If someone's trying to push me away from them, then I do the opposite. That's when I will give them energy. And this has to be changed sometimes at the drop of a hat because the bottom person might change up what they're trying to do. They're trying to push you away and then all of a sudden they change their mind. They're trying to pull you on top. You kind of have to be able to manage this and not fall into what they want before you know it. They're coming up on an underhook or they're, they've entered in your legs and you're defending leg entanglements. So I've been watching Danaher's new instructional. I think it's called like the quickest way to increase your guard passing percentage in Nogi or whatever. And just a great example is he's talking about the differences between seated guard and supine guard. And he's saying seated guard, generally the advantage of the seated guard for the bottom player is the bottom player can choose to come up. They can choose to create pressure from the bottom by wrestling up and using foot techniques to create pressure and connections. The top player has to be aware of this because at any time, if the bottom player is wrestling up, the top player has to react. However, a supinated player who's on their back does not have the ability to wrestle up. And what this means is the top player has an advantage when the bottom player is on their back because the top player can choose to back away from the guard anytime that the bottom player builds connections. This is something that was super evident the last time I was at ADCC trials. The top player would essentially try to, uh, what we'd see constantly is guard passers. I've mentioned him before on my show, Dorian Oliveras this young kid who won East Coast trials, he's blitzing people from the top and running around and then he will try and blitz past them. And then when they build connections to him, he'll just back away. And he can do this because he's forcing them to their back. So he always is able to exit the position anytime that the bottom player builds connections. Whereas if the bottom player can remain in a seated guard, then there's always going to be that threat of a wrestle up. And that's one of the advantages for the guard player to be seated as opposed to supine. And so the top player... As a general rule, if the top player is approaching a supine guard, they should be thinking about controlling their feet and trying to create angles, generally, I would say. Against a seated guard, the top player should be thinking about controlling the bottom player's hands because the seated guard's player's hands are what's going to be controlling the top player from the seated guard. And so, like I was saying, if you're on top and you're just constantly coming forward into a seated guard, you're definitely going to get your legs entangled. It has to be a little bit more of a cat and mouse game where the top player has to try and force the seated guard in onto their back first and try to create angles and reactions so that maybe they could achieve a goal, which may be a guard pass, or it may just be getting chest to chest and a half guard. It may not even be chest to chest. It might just be a half guard where you've gotten past your opponent's knee line, or it might even be a body lock where your partner on the bottom still has their knees in front, but you've locked your, your hands around their back. However you like to play your guard pass game, you have to play the distance game. And a lot of the time passing the guard doesn't mean coming forward. A lot of the time you're shutting down the bottom player by actually backing away and being patient and waiting for an opportunity to get into an advantageous position where you can hold for long periods of time and sort of camp on them 
And again, that is so much of like what the neutral cycle looks like until you get to those positions of advantage. And then you can kind of put your weight on the bottom player and just camp out there. Man, there's so much to unpack there. I think the first thing that I want to expand on is you brought up a really important distinction between seated guards and supine guards. I used to have a lot more trouble with people passing my guard, and it was mostly because I would just settle into supine guard. I had this idea in my head of what a guard was supposed to look like based on what I'd seen in the UFC and based on what instructors were showing me. And I assumed that generally you want to be on your back. But I realize now that being supine is not really an advantage unless you have killer control over your opponent somehow. You got to have some part of their body, whether it be grabbing onto their arm, grabbing onto their leg. You have to have something that you can use to control the distance. So in the gi, for example, a lot of supine guards work because you establish this push-pull motion where you pull with your hand grips and then you push with your legs. That kind of forces the person to, to posture down, to break down. And then when they're leaning forward, they're a lot more vulnerable. But if you go into a supine guard and you don't have those grips, there's really not much stopping them from just doing whatever they want. They can just walk around you most of the time. It's very important to understand that supine guard really requires some sort of grip control or else you're basically just giving up your mobility. So my preference now is to start out from seated guard and go supine if the position dictates itself. So I think really great advice there. The other thing too that I think is important to expand on is you talked about how if someone is supine, you might want to start by attacking their feet because that's kind of what's in front of you. Whereas if they're seated, their hands are probably going to be the first thing you have to deal with. And I bring this up because there's some kind of jujitsu old adages that float around a lot. I know I was told them early in my journey, and I don't think they're entirely true. One of them is when people talk about the layers of guard, they will sometimes say, you have to clear the feet first, and then you got to clear, you know, you climb up and then you get past their hands and whatever. But it's not always the feet that are first. If someone is seated, it might be the hands that you actually have to clear first. It just depends on what the person is presenting you with. So I think that's always important to understand. And again, another old adage that I heard coming up was when you're on the offense, you want to try to take away space. When you're on the defense, you want to try to create space. And again, I realize now that that is actually not true because there are many times, as you brought up, where when you're attacking, the sensible thing is to back out, change the angle, an attack from a slightly different angle. That might be a smarter thing to do. Similarly, there's a lot of positions where you're defending from where you might actually want to get in really close because that might allow you to rotate around your opponent or get behind them or something. So I think that some of those old sayings in jujitsu, you have to be a little bit careful about just adopting as truth because they're not always true. And sometimes the game evolves and changes and maybe an old saying that made sense a few years ago no longer makes any sense given the current meta. I think so many people can be effective from top position if they understand that a lot of guard passing has to do with actually backing away. If you think about what playing guard really is, if you're going to be effective from any guard, doesn't matter any guard, you need connection. If you don't have connection with your opponent, you can't off balance them and you can't start to do your sweeps. And so when I started shifting my perspective as a top player to first breaking connections, usually by backing out or uh, creating distance and then, you know, getting to an advantageous angle and then applying pressure, my guard passing changed dramatically by breaking connections first. 
the top player really sets themselves up for success. If you just let the bottom player grip you and you fail to recognize that you've lost the distance battle and now the bottom player has the ingredients they need to off balance and sweep, the top player is totally going to get fucked up. The top player has to first break connections and then proceed. It would almost be like a common example is like if someone's playing half guard from the bottom, let's use Nogi as an example. Person on the bottom is playing half guard and they grip your wrist and the top player ignores the fact that they've gotten their wrist gripped and they still come forward with guard passes. There's really no way to pass the guard when you've been out gripped in this scenario. It's a surefire way for the top person to get caught like an underhook situation or a John Wayne sweep or even submissions. You have to rectify that problem first. You have to break that grip before you can proceed. It's kind of echoing when we talked about fighting for inside position, but you know, you could even say that a common mistake that I think a lot of people make in jujitsu is failing just to recognize the little battles that they lose. And then they still progress forward without recognizing these battles. And what happens is they end up getting swept, you know, they get off balanced and because they've been out gripped, they can't post their hand on the floor. I just want to say my recommendation for those who are studying in the gi, if you want to learn about distance, there's a couple of instructionals I really, really enjoyed. First of all, from the bottom position, it's called Understanding the Distance from Guard, I believe, from Guy Mendez. And then he has one on top, Understanding the Distance on Top by Guy Mendez. And to sort of reinforce the Understanding the Distance on Top instructional by Guy, I would recommend any Guy player out there who wants to improve their guard passing, check out Tynan Dalpra's long step passing instructional. That was a real game changer for me. You know, I was looking for ways to kind of restructure my gi game and who else would be better than watching a guy like Tynan Dalpra, you know, who's one of the best guard passers in the world. This is a guy who just smoked Oliver Taza last night in his second no gi performance just dominated him, albeit he had some size advantage for sure. But uh, Taza is a very experienced and high-level, strictly no-gi grappler, and Tynan comes in here and, and just destroys him. That long-step instructional by Tynan, so good. And he really talks a lot about the distance, basically saying, you know, once you set up your position, if your opponent's trying to pull you on top of them, push them away so that you create space. If they're trying to push you away, that's when you pull yourself in. He's always going to the opposite of the energy that the bottom player wants. And you can just see in his guard passing, he is incredibly effective with that long step. Yeah, yeah. That's a really important thing to understand. Grips dictate position. If you ignore the fact that you've lost the grip fight and continue to try to pass the guard or execute whatever you're trying to do, you're probably going to fail. It is really hard to get what you want done in jujitsu if you've lost the grip fight. Good advice that I once received was when you're trying to pass the guard, step number one is to disentangle. Step number two is to control. And then step number three is to pass. A mistake that many beginners make is they get so focused on trying to do this technique they've got in their head that they forget to disentangle first. Or maybe they've disentangled, but then they forget to properly control their opponents. A common example that comes up in my mind is someone will be in their opponent's half guard, and they'll kind of get to sort of a knee slice type position. Then the person on bottom gets an underhook on them. And the person on top is like, fuck it, YOLO, I'm going to do this anyway. And they knee cut and they wind up giving up their back. You don't know how many times I fucking saw that today at the <laughs> tournament. And it made my head hurt. <laughs> like, no, you don't pass when you don't have a fucking underhook. God damn you people. 
It's such a common mistake, and I think it's because beginners, they get so excited at the prospect of seeing a win in front of them that they become blind to everything else. And I think the other problem, too, is that beginners often think in terms of techniques, and they don't see that, hey, you forgot this very important detail, which is you got to win the grip fight. They just see my knee is between this guy's legs, therefore knee cut pass. And learning to think kind of more broadly and more conceptually and to understand that there's a sequence to these things. You can't skip steps in jujitsu against a good person. If you are losing the grip fight, the last thing you want to do is try to advance position. That's why beginners are so easy to sweep is because you can have them tied up And then they'll try to pass your guard while they're completely tied up and their alignment is fucked, right? So that is just a a really key detail for people is understanding that you've got to deal with those grips before anything else. Or I think in that knee cut scenario we're discussing, you'll always see them grab the head and they think, oh, I grabbed the head, therefore I have control. And I see this in kids class literally every day. And every time I see it, I just tell the kid who's on the bottom, I'm like, you have a tight waist, just come up. And then they come up and they take the other person's back. And I'm like, yeah, this is just going to keep happening until you learn. Like you're going to get your back taken because you don't have an underhook. I always tell you, punch an underhook. Don't come forward unless you have the underhook. But they still do it. They still just grab the head and they think, okay, I've grabbed the head. Therefore, I can knee cut through. And then there will be times, again, when you see a beginner fighting a beginner or you see kids fighting other kids that aren't the highest level who don't understand this fight for inside position, you'll see them get some success out of it. Like they'll they'll kind of slide into like a Kesakatami position and it'll work and they'll be able to like hold the person down or they'll quickly step over into mount. And so they think, well, that worked. So I'm going to keep doing it. Right. And I'm just like, oh, like, I just wish you would get your back taken. So you would realize that that is, you know, a big mistake. Like usually we want to think about punching an underhook on that far side. And uh, again, just like you said, grips or just fighting for the inside position is one of the most important things you can think about. Let's shift to the next thing I wanted to talk about. That was uh, not setting goals. I think this is in jujitsu and in life, but I think everyone should go into training with a goal. Goals for today in practice, goals for this week, goals for this month, goals for three months from now, goals for a year from now, et cetera. Like you should kind of think ahead and kind of plan the things that you want to accomplish and set daily habits that will help you kind of work towards those goals. So I might go into training today and say, okay, well, for me, I've been studying donkey guard a lot lately. I've been studying this uh, reverse cowgirl, as Owen Jones calls it, this reverse cowgirl position. And man, I fucking love it. Like I'm going to do an episode about it soon because I really have had a lot of success going to this position. And my goal for the last week has been, okay, I want to get to donkey guard and I want to be successful with it. I want to see if I can sweep from it. I want to see if I can maintain it. I want to see if I can uh, submit people from it. And I'm having a ton of success. I'm realizing now it's totally an untapped position that I have not given any respect to. But if you get caught in reverse cowgirl and you don't know what to do, it's a nightmare. It's a very good position to score on people from different rule sets, IBJJF, ADCC. It's very, very effective and very cool submissions from there too. Yeah, it's a really interesting position to attack from. I think it's interesting that it's now kind of getting its renaissance. You and I were talking about this offline that that position got a lot of shit when it first came out because the argument was this is making a mockery of the sport. It's not realistic for self-defense. And so many of the Gracie tournaments banned Donkey Guard. In fact, for all I know, maybe it is still banned. I don't know. Maybe they finally unbanned it. That's so stupid, by the way. 
Why would they fucking ban that? It's so dumb. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just funny too, because when you think about Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you're talking about a martial art where you're often scooting around on your ass to try to catch someone, right? It already looks ridiculous. Like, why did we decide that donkey guard is the line where, okay, this is too ridiculous. We can't allow this, but we're allowed to have someone scoot across the mat like a dog with tapeworms, right? That doesn't make sense to me. I think that it's better to let this stuff play out in competition and see what actually holds up and what doesn't. Yeah, like if it's effective, we use it. That's kind of the Brazilian jiu-jitsu motto. A lot of this shit looks ridiculous, you know, like deep half guard and fucking even being on someone's back or rear mount. Like, I mean, these positions look fucking ridiculous. And, And like, so yes, I understand donkey guard is ridiculous. I think the reason why I didn't give it credit is because I didn't see a lot of attacks from there. But now there's so many great submissions, like there's toe holds that are very effective. There's heel hooks. There's this A block, which is like a hybrid of toe hold and heel hook. Incredibly effective from that position. You can sweep with it. It's friggin' frustrating for the person to get out of. And if you're already an avid leg locker like myself, the donkey guard blended into my game so easily because instead of entangling one leg, I'm just entangling their torso. One thing I like to say is why ignore 50% of the legs? (laughs) And it's so true. If I go from a K guard into a backside 50-50 and try and heel hook someone, the common response you're going to get nowadays, you know, it's not 2017 where Lachlan literally heel hooked everyone with this move. The common response you see nowadays, everyone knows, okay, I'm just going to back step out of it and try and go to neutral 50-50. And that's what you see. When I entangle one leg, the free leg can always move and, you know, create a defensive spin or stay in base or whatever it is. If I entangle your entire torso, now there is no defensive spinning. If you do a defensive spin, you literally sweep yourself. And so I don't know how this episode became just us talking about fucking donkey guard, but I think it's because I said uh, it was a goal of mine to go into training and to play with something new. And I've done that with the long step pass. I've done that with so many different situations going into training and just having that goal and being willing to fail at something and try to work it out. That's really how you incorporate something into your game. Or you could go into training knowing you have a weakness in your game. Well, I get my guard pass too much or I end I always end up chest to chest and half guard and I always have to work my way out of that or I get my guard pass. You got to ask yourself like, what are the little battles that are happening that are causing those failures and what kind of goals can you set on a daily basis? You can go into training and try and focus on those goals. You know, even a short amount of time, like a couple of days or a week goes by and you can measurably see improvement in your game just by, you know, consciously having these goals in mind. And then your goals could expand by weeks and months. You could say, okay, well, I got a, you know, competition in, in a month or two. I want to start increasing my strength training. I want to start increasing cardiovascular training. I want to get this many classes a week, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it, it's endless, but going into training without any goals and going in just to go in, while I agree you will still get better, I think it could be a lot more productive by just having little goals in mind to chip away at. And the thing about goal setting too, is it doesn't have to be this big fancy thing. There's going to be a lot of casual grapplers out there who say, look, I'm not interested in competing or winning world championships. So why do I have to set goals? Well, you still should set goals. They don't have to be super complicated or they don't have to be super aspirational even, but to at least do a bit of reflection on where your weaknesses lie 
and what you could do to patch up those weaknesses is going to pay dividends really, really quickly. I think a big mistake that a lot of jujitsu people make is just kind of falling into the fun trap because one of the things about jujitsu is it is fun, right? It is rewarding for its own sake. I can go into class and learn nothing. I can just goof around and still have a great time. That's literally what you do every class. That is actually exactly my entire game plan. And it can be an an addictive trap, right? Because when you look at it as a completely purely fun activity, which it often is, then it can distract from the practice of trying to get better at things. This is a little bit different from a lot of jobs and career paths because there's many kind of jobs and career paths that people are just, they're not doing it because it's fun, right? They're doing it because it's a means to an end. So of course they're motivated to get better so they can charge more, so they can make more, so they can do better on their job, so they can advance their career. But in jujitsu, especially as you get older, it's easy to just fall into this, like, I'm just having fun mindset. And I'm not going to say that's wrong, but that's kind of accepting that you're giving up on growth. And I would say that in addition to goal setting, a big thing that people often fail to do is reflect afterwards on their performance, how they measured up to those goals and figure out how they need to pivot for next time. Setting all of the goals in the world doesn't do you any favors if you just don't take any action afterwards. So I like to think of really even every single class is kind of a three-part session. Number one is I go in with a plan about something I want to work on, and it's got to be something I can control too, right? If your plan for the day is I'm going to tap out Johnny, right? That's a little bit hard to set as a plan because you don't even know if Johnny's going to be there, let alone how the role's going to go. But I like to set things that are within my control. Like I want to try to get to single leg X guard wherever I can and get comfortable and confident attacking from sweeps from there. Then I go to class and I do it. And then I reflect afterwards and I try to think, okay, what worked? I should do more of that. What didn't work and how can I improve that or change or try a different experiment for next time? It's just a really good feedback loop to have whenever you're trying to get better at anything. And again, I think in the case of jujitsu, it can especially be a a dangerous trap to fall in where you're just there to have fun because it is so fun and you're not thinking actively about getting better. You're just assuming that the growth will happen by putting time in, but you're always going to get better if you're deliberate about it. I think it's really easy to fall into that trap, especially for those who are more recreational, you know, like it's easy to just go to class. You want to make some friends and laugh and blow off some steam. Like I totally get that. But the athletes who are really serious and they really want to focus on progression and being better than they were yesterday, those are the athletes that are going to go in with these goals. And I think at least for me, in terms of where my life has gone career wise, Just speaking from a business standpoint, I think these goals are so important. It's probably not going to be so much on a day-to-day basis in those regards. I think in terms of my career, when I was in my previous job cooking, I that's where I was setting uh, one-year plans, two-year plans, five-year plans, 10-year plans, and sort of thinking like, okay, where do I see myself five years from now? Where do I want to be? Where do I see myself 10 years from now? Of course, you know, I wanted to have an academy and now I've done that. Now my goals have shifted. Now I want to have 10 years from now, I'd like to be in a different space. I'd like to have at least this many students. I'd like to have different revenue streams. And so like when you think ahead like this, it kind of allows your brain to, you can sort of brainstorm and and generate ideas and get those creative juices going rather than just like going through life, going through the motions and not really thinking about the next step, especially for martial artists, you know, it's not easy to be a jiu-jitsu competitor 
and live off of uh, just being good. It's almost non-existent unless you're the top 1% in the world. Same thing with MMA fighters. They go into MMA and, you know, they love fighting and it's fun and it's fucking, before you know it, you blink and you're 30. And then you blink again, you're like, you're midway through your 30s and you're too old to fight now. And it's like, okay, what is your plan after fighting? You know, are you going to have an academy? Are you going to have a podcast? Are you going to find a way to make money that can keep you in the realm of martial arts so you don't have to go work at Home Depot? Like how, where are you going to go with this? It's going to be difficult, even like for Olympics. I always shit on the Olympics because you have these young judo fighters and these young wrestlers who their whole dream is to win the Olympics. And then they go and they win the Olympics or they get to the Olympics, they don't win. And then they realize there's like, fuck, there's nothing left after this. There's no money after this. I either need to go into MMA or I need to teach. And that's it. Like really for everyone, not just martial artists, but I think everyone should have a five-year plan, a 10-year plan. Think about where you want to be decades from now and look at the path you're going on and ask yourself, am I on that path? Or do I need to really think about what I'm doing with my life to get to where I want to be? Because you don't want to be fucking 50 or 60 and be locked into a career that you hate or a job that you wish you had done that, you know, you started that business, you wish you had done something else, but you just didn't because the routine was just so comfortable. And now you look back and you're like, fuck, I could have done more. I could have accomplished more. And that's actually one of the reasons why I started a gym is because I really hated the idea of the regret of it all. Yeah. Routine is one of the most powerful tools that human beings have to get things done, but it's also one of the most dangerous traps because you can get stuck in it without even knowing it. And the next thing you know, five years have, have passed by. And that's why I think it's so important to think actively about what you could be doing different, both for the big things and for the little things, and be willing to pivot and try new things. You talked about casual grapplers and you know how they can fall into the fun trap. I mean, Matt, how many older black belts do you know who train for a hobby and they just don't get better? I know a ton of them, right? Like older guys, they just, they're not actively improving. And it's because at this point it's just become a hobby for them. It's like, you know, painting models or something like that, right? They come in for fun and they're not actively focusing on studying, even trying new things, right? I'm not going to tell busy people that they need to spend hours a day watching instructionals, but to even try new things or experiment in the gym a lot of people don't do that. And it's because I think it just becomes this kind of fun hobby. I would say that as a hobbyist black belt, it's actually a really dangerous trap to fall into because when you're only training two times a week or whatever it may be, you really have to pick your shots if you want to improve. It's a little bit different when you're earlier on in your journey because everything is new and you're just getting bombarded with so much stuff, you will get a bit better. But if you're a hobbyist, I mean, I can say this from experience, if you're in a gym and you're the most experienced person by a significant amount, it is hard to just be constantly getting challenged with new things every day that those challenges don't just happen on their own. You have to actively try to invent them or create them. And even in a, a situation where you are the most senior person on the mat, you can do that. Rob Bernanke's fuck your jujitsu system is a great way to do that. I love that because I can get really meaningful practice with white belts now by using that kind of system. So, I mean, I don't really want to be too judgy here because I think it's completely fine to get to the point in jujitsu where you feel like I'm good enough. I've reached my skill goals. I'm happy here. Now I just want to have fun. I don't want to judge people for that, but I think a lot of people fall into that trap without realizing it and then they don't quite know how to dig out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you use the analogy of people want to just make models, but 
making models is productive. <laughs> I think going into class and having no goals or not thinking about things like that, it's just not going to be very productive. I don't mean to shit on recreational people. Recreational people are incredibly important to all academies. Like, you know, it's not just going to be the competitors that are going to be paying the bills. That's, I assure you, that's not it. But the recreational people should still, you know, they're dedicating their time and their money to something. They should in my opinion, try to get the most out of the experience for their time. I think doing these small goals is really, really important and just fueling those goals with daily habits and really just thinking about it. And even if you, maybe you're you're like, well, I'm so new that I don't know what I should be working on. I mean, ask someone, what can I be working on, right? Like, what do you think are some holes in my game? And then just a simple chat like that can kind of identify some things uh, to work towards. Okay, so I had one more point, And the last point was just believing everything that your instructor says or believing that one person has all of the information. I think the more time that you put into martial arts, the more you realize that, man, this is vast. This is never ending. This is a lifetime study. We could live 10 lifetimes. We're still not going to learn everything. That's just how vast something like jujitsu and martial arts is. And so I think beginners often think, that their instructor is kind of the end all be all, or they maybe there's some cultish behaviors behind how that instructor runs the gym. And they sort of think that they're this all knowing being who is the main authority and, and, you know, they can give you all the tools, but the truth is that's no one person has all of the tools. No one person can show you everything. I always tell my students that like, listen, I can't show you everything. There's things that certain people can do that I can't do and that I can't teach. That doesn't mean that I don't want to learn those things. It just means that I'm being human with you. I don't know everything. And so I think an easy trap for beginners to fall into is to think that they're quote, coach just because they're in a position of authority and they're senior and whatever, they have this mystique about them that they're never wrong or that they could never, that they're the best. And that's just not true. The ocean of jujitsu and the level of skill is so vast and so great that man, like to a lot of black belts in the world, I suck. I'm just a white belt. And this is important to understand when you're going into a gym and you're going into something like jujitsu, it's a lifelong journey. I think it's important to just to be realistic <laughs> with your instructor and, and you don't have to go to them and say, hey, you don't know everything, but just sort of understand that there are going to be other sources that you can benefit from and that your instructor isn't the end all be all of jujitsu. Absolutely. And I would add on to that, that your instructor is not always right. Yes, they may be a black belt or whatever, but that doesn't mean their advice is always good advice. Instructors are subject to false positives just like the rest of us. It is possible that maybe they're doing something suboptimal and it's worked for them this whole time and they've just never really been checked on it and they can communicate that bad advice. I mean, as a black belt, I'm still learning new stuff all the time. So I've got to be very careful because this podcast has been going on for five years. I've said stuff five years ago that I no longer agree with because I've learned things. And so you should never assume that your instructor is perfect and infallible and never take their advice as a, a universal truth. That's not to say you shouldn't listen, but you have to understand that your instructor has their own game, their own body type, their own strengths and weaknesses, their own biases, their own limitations. I mean, this is something the ecological dynamics folks really understand. You can't just cookie cutter someone else's experience into another human being. I think we've all had this where we train with one or two people who just seem to be able to break the rules every time and they can just do stuff different. I and mean, we're all just different. The things that work for one person might not work for someone else. So I think it's also important to understand that your instructor is also human 
they're also fallible. And so you've got to understand that when you're taking advice from them, it's not guaranteed to be completely true for everyone all the time. Yes. But do you think that the eco guys are also kind of under that spell too? Like I love Greg Souders. I've had him on my show a couple of times. So have you, I've learned a lot from his teachings. Like I just educating me on how we learn and how you can build task focused games. And just like, honestly, ecological training has helped me out so much, even though a lot of people out there would probably disagree that what I'm doing is true eco training. But I think there's a lot of people who you know, they listen to Greg and they think everything he says is truth. Right. And I wonder, like, does he think that what he's saying is a hundred percent, this is how it is. And this is how it should always be. Because I feel like you said, you know, things have changed even in a short amount of time. Like we're always thinking about trying to improve the way that we do things. Right. If you have a true Kaizen mindset, then do you really ever have the best way to learn. I love eco training, but I also love explicit instruction. I think the most effective training and learning lies somewhere between with a balance of both. And all the best jujitsu coaches in the world use to some degree explicit instruction. And so I do think that like when we're talking about eco, a lot of people will think that anything Greg says, they will just follow it. You know what I mean? And you can just see in the comment section, everyone, oh, he doesn't do the reading and all this stuff. But the truth is, is like, we're all just trying to find out the best way. And I can admit that I don't know everything. I can admit that I don't know the best way. That's why I played with eco and I immersed myself in eco training. I used to say things like, oh, I would never do something this way. Don't do it this way. Never do it this way. Now I look back and I'm like, I was way wrong. Like there are scenarios when I might do something that way. But in that moment, I was so sure that I knew how do we really know, right? And I think just having like a a flexible mind and having an instructor that has a flexible mind and an instructor that will tell you, hey, like, I don't know everything. I'm being real with you. I can try my best. And I think what's really cool is an instructor who will learn from anyone in the room. You know, like I have a couple of, well, one guy's a blue belt and he's actually a school teacher and he studies a lot of stuff and he has shown me so much stuff. And I'm not, I don't have an ego. I don't be like, Hey man, you're a blue belt. Like, you know, you should be learning from me. Like when he shows me something cool, he was one of the guys who first got me into donkey guard, you know, this guy. And and I was just like, he put me in donkey guard and I was like, holy fuck, I'm stuck here. What is this? I have to learn this. And he's like, man, I've been using this position is sick. Trust me. And I'm just like, huh? If I can learn this from a blue belt, I'm a black belt learning something from a blue belt. Like that's something for all of us to take away. And I think there's a lot of opportunities to learn and to grow if we go into training with that kind of a mindset. Absolutely. 100%. I think too, there's also a bit of a telephone game, right? Very few people have done all of the original work and research themselves. We all stand on the shoulders of giants and we try to communicate forward the lessons that we have learned from the people in the past, but that doesn't mean that we understood them correctly. Maybe there's an idea or a concept that is really, really valid and it's great to get behind, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I understand it perfectly as well. So I have to be careful as an instructor if I'm going to go out and tell people how something is done, because even if the source material I'm drawing from is totally sound and logical, that doesn't mean that the way I present it will be. And so I think we always have to have that in mind when we're talking about things that involve communication. There's always a telephone game. There's always a degree of interpretation. There's always the possibility of misunderstanding. So we always have to assume 
that we don't know everything or that we might have misunderstood or that there might be a better way because like human beings are just kind of messy and complicated, right? It's very hard to just transmit data like you could from a computer from one to another. We always have to assume that there might be a better way or a misunderstanding. And I think for coaches, that's especially important because when you are the coach, people are going to be inclined to believe what you say. And so important, again, as the coach to acknowledge the limitations of your knowledge. Definitely. What a great chat. Absolutely. Did I tell you about the, what I did at the gym the other day? You're going to like this. Go on. Okay. So on the topic of goal setting, we've got this new guy at our gym. He's like a big, young, experienced, athletic MMA fighter, which is, as you can imagine, basically the nightmare opponent for someone like me, right? <laughs> and so... <laughs> So I'm thinking, you know what? I want to spar with this guy because he's just ripping apart everyone else in the room and I'm going to learn the most out of sparring with this dude. So I do the little goal setting thing and I decide I should go and actively seek out this guy. And also he seems a little bit lonely because frankly, everyone's ducking him. So I go to spar with this guy. I pull turtle and I pull an, an open turtle, right? Which is where you're not all compact, but you're kind of up and almost more like a referee position. This motherfucker steps behind me and puts me in a camel clutch and submits me. <laughs> the Iron Sheik's finishing move. So you know what I did? You're like, that's a crank, bro. I was going to say, because I'm a growth mindset person, you know what I did is I tapped and then I informed him that that was a crank. And because this is not <laughs> MMA and that I'm wearing a gi, technically it's a disqualification and I won. <laughs> <laughs> so we both learned the lesson that day. <laughs> Oh my God. That's amazing. I think that's fucking hilarious. Something happened today at the tournament. This kid totally abused the rules and he was in a triangle with no arm inside and this is illegal, right? And so he instantly tapped thinking he was going to get a disqualification victory and the referee didn't see that the arm wasn't in and he actually lost by submission. <laughs> I was just like, oh, that's just poetic justice. And then, of course, he was complaining and it's just like is a whole messy thing. I don't know. That was just something that happened to me at the tournament today. And I'm just thinking like, yeah, that's kind of what you get, you know, when you try and get like a cheesy win like that. There's a lot of there's a lot of IBJJF rules, especially at the kids level where I think they try and keep the kids too safe. But again, we are teaching kids to break each other's arms and strangle each other. So I guess this whole safety thing does have to, it does have to have authority from a referee's <laughs> perspective. As much as I would just love to let the kids all fight to the death for our amusement, there probably do need to be some restrictions on that. For those who don't know, at my academy, every Friday from four to five, I teach um, leg locks to children <laughs> and it's fucking awesome. I teach them like heel hooks and stuff. And I'm just like, yeah, I mean, when you come to this class, all subs are legal with the exception of neck cranks, but we allow twisters and things like that. And there's full on heel hooks happening. And like, I got to be on my toes because if, if a kid gets cranked and I'm neglectful, that's not good. So I'm always like, my eyes are always moving around the room, but it's, it's pretty funny. And so far we haven't had any injuries or anything and the kids love heel hooks. So it's man, it's been super cool. And I'm always just like... <laughs> I've always just like, so that class, and then there's a comp class for them. And then there's a wrestling class where we usually do incorporate some submissions. And I'm like, you guys got to defend yourself at all times. Heel hooks are on at all times. Like, you know, and oh my God, my jaw got cranked. I'm like, well, why weren't your hands in place? You know what I mean? I'm just like, if you come to this class, I'm basically treating you like an adult. <laughs> the whole kid's safety thing just, I don't know. It goes out the window. I mean, that's maybe something we could talk about sometime. I don't know if you heard, but we had a chat with Preet Mikkelsen recently, and he talked about teaching inside heel hooks to day one white belts. And I thought, 
this is absolutely hilarious. He does that? Yeah. The defensive BJJ turtle guy is starting his teaching with submissions first. And a big part of his argument was, look, you're not actually telling these kids to rip limbs off of each other. You're just putting them in the position. You're teaching them to get comfortable, to understand where the danger is. And then you're teaching them to escape those positions. Because if you create this mystique around these positions that they're terribly dangerous and they're not to be used, then not only do you stunt everyone's growth, but you deny them the opportunity to learn how to play and attack and defend from those positions safely. And so what he found, now granted, I mean, you know, this is a sample size of one, but what he found is that by focusing on submissions first, you can take the fear out of that and you can inform people and give them knowledge about how to handle these situations so it's actually not so scary. So I thought that was an interesting approach. I mean, I'm all for breaking the mold and teaching kids leg locks, but day one, I mean, I probably don't do that on day one. There's a certain level that is required for kids to come to that class, but I can understand his reasoning, you know, like if you can make a child or a beginner confident in escaping submissions, then you're right. It would take away that fear. I think a huge mistake when teaching is to never have students work their way out of deep submissions. Like I really like, you could do this with arm bars. You could do this with triangles starting in like fully uh, locked arm bars and triangles and just have the attacker try to hold and just try and maintain the submission, but not finish it. And now the other person is like trying to find their way out. And so there's a lot of growth that can happen in those deep stages, because if you think about it, like how often are you in a fully locked arm bar? Like very rarely, unless you suck, unless you're really fucking bad. But most people, I would say, don't really get caught in arm bars very often. And when they do, panic sets in. Right. And then when panic sets in, you're not thinking, you can't really clearly think about what the next goal is to escape the submission. And a lot of the time you make mistakes. Whereas if you just you say, okay, look, you're not going to get submitted. This is a fully locked submission. You're supposed to lose. This is supposed to suck. But as long as there's a level of trust here, and as long as we understand what the goal of this exercise is, the attacker can gain really good skill in the control department and the defender can gain really good skill in the escaping department. And I think that this is like a really underutilized way to train. Absolutely. Well, hey, maybe we could park that and save that for another day. Matt, people want to chat with you, talk to you harass you? How do they go about doing that? Yeah. So, I mean, you can always message me on the OnGuard BJJ Instagram account. Also, I got my podcast. It was the Essential Jiu-Jitsu podcast, but because of, uh, there's a guy who, I don't know, I think he's pretty good. His name is JT Torres. He, uh, his gym is called Essential BJJ and JT didn't like that. I named my podcast Essential. Like only his, only his jujitsu is essential. Mine is not. And so I had to change my podcast name. It's now the Everyday Jujitsu Podcast. I'm currently in the middle of relaunching the Everyday Jujitsu Podcast. So yeah, it's not going to be available in the States probably for another week or two. I'm hoping I can get it fixed and then we'll be back on all platforms, uh, rolling it full steam. But yeah, you can check me out there. Other than that, if you want to support the show, you can check out my online academy. Go to onguardbjj.com, click join, check out the online academy. There's all of my live, there's live sparring footage, there's lesson analysis and a whole lot more. And uh, thanks for having me, Steve. Appreciate it. Getting your podcast taken down by JT Torres is the kind of dumbass thing that could only happen to you, Matt. It's true. <laughs> It's true. I mean, it was me being negligent. Honestly, I didn't consider when I came up with my name, like I didn't really think about his gym. Join us next week when uh, JT Torres joins us to talk about mental <laughs> models for trademark infringement. That's going to be a fun one too. <laughs> 
Yeah, if it's okay with JT Torres, if if, if I call it the Everyday Jiu-Jitsu Podcast, it's okay. I actually prefer the name. I mean, I know that people are more and more taking the B out of BJJ. I think that Everyday BJJ has a nice kind of cadence to it, but Everyday Jiu-Jitsu, I think, is also just a good strong name as well, a bit easier to say and remember as well. Yeah, I put the BJ in BJJ. <laughs> well, I'll put all of those links in the show notes, as I always do. I'll also put a link to our stuff, BJJMentalModels.com is where everything lives, all the episodes of the podcast, the newsletter, also our premium stuff. We've got an ever-growing library of audio courses on there, additional premium podcasts hosted by the likes of Emily Kwok, Johannan, Drew Foster, some really great material. And of course, in our coaching tier, you can get rolling reviews as well. Definitely do recommend it. The service has been growing a ton. Really happy with how it's all come together. And we've got big things planned for the rest of this year too. So you definitely want to get in sooner rather than later. All of that you can get at bjjmentalmodels.com. But again, I'll put a link to my stuff and also to Matt's stuff in the show notes. But anyway, buddy, thanks a lot. Have fun with the rebrand. Good chat. And yeah, if you want to come by and talk about uh, common mistakes for like competitors or business owners, uh, instructors, I think that could be fun too. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Take care, you guys. Take care, Matt. Thanks to everyone else. Talk to you next time.